Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of Global Summetry. Very pleased today to have with us uh, for an interview David Victor. David is a professor of international relations at uh, the University of California at San Diego, and he's a director of the school's Laboratory on International Law and Regulation. David has been a contributor to the UNFCCC's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. David and I have the opportunity to discuss some of the more uh, complex issues on the transformation of major economies to low-carbon emitting ones. I'm very pleased to have him with us. And let's get on with the interview. So, David, I wanted to turn to President Trump's decision to withdraw uh, the U.S. from the Paris Accord. At the time of the announcement, which was in the Rose Garden, actually, uh, at the White House, Trump argued that the Paris Accord was unfair to the United States, that it imposed obligations on the United States that were not, and he mentioned specifically China, and that uh, even if everybody, in fact, met their current uh, nationally determined contributions, the so-called NDCs, that it wouldn't change the temperature at all, or very little. So, So is... Was Donald Trump right about these particular uh, accusations? No, I think on almost every front he was wrong and he purposefully misunderstood the the purpose of the Paris framework. I think that he withdrew was not surprising because he said he would do so on the campaign trail that for a segment of the far right in America – Paris is emblematic of a global governance process that's gone awry, and um, and so for his base, this is a, actually a very popular, a very popular move. And as to Paris itself, uh, there's no question that the commitments that countries agreed to weren't going to change radically the climate. But that wasn't the point. The point was that this was the beginning of a process of cooperation, um, and, and the commitments that the United States agreed to were commitments that the United States itself determined, in which the United States could also alter. That's the whole genius of the Paris approach which is that it's flexible enough for countries to figure out what they're willing and able to do, say, here's our plan, and then go off and implement it and then adjust their pledges over time. And so I, I think it's it's uh, it, it was purposefully disingenuous and it was designed to kind of create a, a monster out of uh, global governance when in fact Paris had been designed actually mainly by American diplomats to be quite the opposite of a monster. Mm-hmm. And, and so what do you think, I mean, looking at it in kind of summary fashion, What do you think are the consequences of the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Accord, recognizing, of course, that they can't immediately withdraw anyway? Well, I think there are consequences for the U.S. and then there are consequences for the larger international process of doing something about climate change. So for the United States, this is a self-inflicted wound. This is a, a fight with important allies and particularly Europeans that we didn't need to have. This is a very important topic for them. Uh, you and I are talking right now at the same week that the G20 meeting is taking place. He's going to hear an earful from the Europeans and others about this uh, there. And so it kind of spoils the water 
for other areas where we need to cooperate with other other countries. And so it's a it's a loss in American soft power, if you like. So I think that's a that's a self almost entirely a self-inflicted wound that was done for domestic political reasons. To me, the more interesting question is what does all this mean for the international process on climate change? Um, d- does it does it kind of spell the end of Paris or does Paris soldier on? And 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 here's where I think the design of Paris is so important because it was designed to be flexible. It was designed to have one or more big countries leave perhaps for a while or not live up to all their commitments and it, it would it would still bend as opposed to break in the face of that unlike the unlike the Kyoto protocol so i think i'm actually pretty optimistic about the paris process overall we've seen a lot of countries say they're going to fill some or all of the leadership vacuum by the United States, including the Chinese, remains to be seen. Um, so so I, I, I think that's actually pretty encouraging. Okay. Um, let me ask you about a kind of ancillary element around the Paris Accord and just your views on this. Um, as you know, at the time the Paris Accord was reached, Bill Gates uh, uh, brought together a number of venture capitalists in a new group called the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, which uh, put together some, by the end of it, at least at the moment, around 20 different venture capitalists. And it was kind of linked up to an entity which actually the United States, again, was very important in creating something called uh, Mission Innovation. And it seemed like the two elements were put together to help accelerate clean energy, and in particular, clean energy storage. Now, there's some suspicions within the climate change audience about Bill, because Bill uh, has always been committed to nuclear energy. Uh, he has a company called TerraPower. So the question is whether the Breakthrough Energy Coalition and the venture funds that are being generated around it are really about uh, alternate energy uh, alone or whether he believes that there really isn't an alternative uh, to the use of various forms of nuclear power in if we're going to make this rapid transition or a relatively rapid transition to a, a low carbon uh, economy well i can't speak obviously for him right um but i think it's going to be all the above you know there's a really robust result in the in the um, engineering analytic literature that's looked at the different strategies for reducing emissions that if you take a major option off the table that that increases the cost of the overall program so you take renewables off the table or you take carbon capture and storage off the table or even nuclear power off the table that everything else has to do a lot more work and that's probably going to be more more expensive and i think that's the attitude to take when looking at these technology investments and to, to me the the Announcements around the Breakthrough Energy Coalition or on mission innovation. Breakthrough was more of a private sector-led activity. Mission innovation, a public sector activity to, to double spending in energy-related R&D. So far, not really on track to do that. that. That those are actually some of the most important things that were catalyzed by the Paris process because um, you, can, you can make shallow reductions in emissions keep emissions flat, reduce them 10, 20% with existing technologies, with doing more on energy efficiency, switching from coal to natural gas, things that countries and firms and and uh, lots of other folks are doing right now. Mm-hmm. But deep decarbonization, 80% reductions in emissions globally, that's going to require new technologies. And and I think um, the, the what's really important about the climate problem is that you need to have some combination of credible incentives for firms to go deploy these technologies as well as public sector and long-term patient capital investments in the new ideas and technologies that are going to be, you know, real breakthroughs. And Mm -hmm. and that's what they're trying to do. And and, and I think that's a good thing. 
Okay. Uh, continuing on this kind of looking at the kind of the energy uh, framework, the energy grid, a colleague of yours uh, at Stanford and a number of his colleagues, Mark Jacobson and some of his colleagues, wrote a piece in 2015. And they argued that it was feasible to provide low-cost solutions to the grid reliability problem with 100% penetration of just wind, water, and solar across all the energy sectors, 100% by 2050 or 2055. Now, there's been a more recent evaluation, and I raise it because you were part of that um, uh, evaluation in which you push back and argue that policymakers should treat rather with caution any visions of rapid, reliable, and low-cost transition of the entire energy system, in other words, to a deep uh, decarbonization um, framework. And I guess the question is, why is this debate so critical, David? Well, I think deep decarbonization is really important. Climate is a serious problem. It needs serious solutions. And those solutions have to begin fundamentally with deep reductions in emissions. And so I think there's a broad agreement on that. You know, mm-hmm. Not complete agreement. We have some people running the U.S. government right now who don't agree with that. But, but that's, I mean, it's hard to escape that conclusion. And then the question is, how do you do it and at what cost? And um, I, I was frankly a little mystified by the original Jacobson et al. paper that came out in 2015 and the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, mm-hmm. the paper that you mentioned at the top of this question. There was an earlier paper in Scientific American making a similar argument, a series of other papers. But frankly, I just ignored them because they struck me as obviously wrong, that it was obviously wrong that you could make the energy system as reliable as it is today with entirely renewable power and, and cut the cost at the same time, that, that, none, that each of those elements you might be able to imagine a strategy, but doing them all simultaneously you know, while washing the dishes at the same time, <laughs> that, that was not going to happen. And, but I just ignored them because they they seemed oddities. And and the reason I was part of this group of almost two dozen of the leading energy analysts in North America who published a, a rebuttal to Jacobson just a few weeks ago mm-hmm. in the same journal, actually, Journal of Proceedings, uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, is because more people were looking at those Jacobson papers and wanting to believe something that was not believable, that the solution to the carbon problem, deep decarbonization, could be had at net negative cost and it could be all renewable, which is a politically very popular um, Mm -hmm. strategy. And so I think the technical community, frankly, was overdue for the technical community to step in and and look closely at the numbers and look closely at the assumptions and call a spade a spade, which is that that original paper didn't, didn't stack up. And I take it part of this issue is is looking at the the grid uh, itself as we currently have it in continental U.S. or or nearby in Canada and so forth, in which if you're looking at non-dispatchable energy, energy of the renewal type, particularly solar and wind, uh, that that has a, a a real consequence. I take it for the grid and the way in which it's able to handle those inputs. Yeah, so the the papers are making the claim that the entire energy system can be moved to renewables. And so that includes energy that's burned at the point of consumption. So, for mm-hmm. example, natural gas or oil that people have in their house that they use to heat the house or cooking or whatever, as well as energy that's turned into electricity before it's consumed. There's a pretty robust result in the energy analytic literature showing that deep decarbonization is probably also accompanied with electrification because it's easier to control emissions from point sources. And so most of this debate is really re- 
revolved around electricity, and it's revolved around exactly the point that your question points to, which is how do you keep the electric power system reliable at literally at the speed of light because uh, uh, electricity supply and demand has to balance instantly? Mm-hmm. How do you keep it reliable when when renewable sources tend to be highly variable? And and that's been the that's been my main concern with those original papers, and and because of that reliability issue, a lot of the technical debate has focused on, in particular, the role of the hydroelectric system. If you imagine a world where there's massive hydroelectric resources, where uh, existing dams are maybe made larger, or in the case of the Jacobson assumptions, that they're kept the same, but then they're they're used to generate a lot more electricity, mm-hmm. that then you can store energy in the, the hydroelectric dams for whenever it's needed. And that's a magical assumption, because if you make a big enough assumption, then then the lights stay on the whole time. And the problem with that is, is uh, quite apart from the capital cost, is the uh, are the environmental issues and other issues associated with, with, for example, running dams up and down much more during the, during the day when people are already worried about the impact of the hydroelectric system on fish stocks and things like that. And so it's this, it's this kind of real world set of practical considerations, including money, that mm-hmm. meets the fantasy of assumptions that, that a lot of the debate has been around. Mm-hmm. Well, I, it's, uh, taking a, a look at, you know, a, a little further on the fossil fuel side, I wanted to, I wanted to explore that a little bit, and in particular the question of coal. As you know, President, uh, well, candidate Trump, uh, uh, and now President Trump, has been a, a real advocate for a, a coal renewal, uh, coal job renewal, is often what he, he points to. And he's also touted uh, the use of clean coal uh, technology. Now, as you know, uh, coal is, of course, the largest CO2 emitter of all the fossil fuels. And uh, I, I point to an instance here which relates to the clean coal technology issue, which was is the uh, Kemper Clean Coal Project. This is a project in Mississippi, which is long overdue way cost overrun, and just within the last few weeks, Mississippi uh, suspended that uh, facility, and in fact, there's now serious discussion, I take it, of utility regulators, that they're going to actually burn uh, natural gas in the Kemper Clean Coal Project. So the question is, one, you know, what is the future of coal, uh, particularly coal in the United States, let's say, uh, and two, what is the future of this so-called clean coal technology? Yeah, I think those are the those are the right questions. So, so first on the the future of coal itself, setting aside climate regulations, the future of coal in the advanced industrialized world is is pretty bleak. It's not zero, um, but over the last decade in North America, thanks to very cheap natural gas from fracking and horizontal drilling, the share of coal uh, as a fraction of electricity has gone down quite a lot. Now coal and gas are about equal. Gas seems to be even edging ahead. And my guess is that what we're going to see is that essentially all the older inefficient coal plants are going to shut and we'll have a a handful of or more than a large handful of big baseload coal plants that are still operating, um, but it's not going to be like it was was a decade ago. Mm -hmm. During the campaign, Trump made various promises about bringing all the coal jobs back. And so on. My guess, when you look at the kind of fundamental economics of the industry, including automation in the coal industry, which has been a 
a huge source of unemployment, that we're going to see coal jobs continue to slide. Um, there's n- nothing like the slide we've seen since the 1980s, uh, the last couple of decades, where, where there's been a kind of a, a tsunami of automation and efficiency and so on that have really wiped out a lot of jobs. And that's, you know, that, that's a major public policy uh, issue as to what to do with people who've lost their jobs because of technological change. So that's, that's going on and that's built into the industry right now. For climate change, the bigger question, I think, is about the future of what People, some people call clean coal, and in particular, a set of technologies called carbon capture and storage, where you burn coal or natural gas, for that matter, and then you capture the pollution uh, and either use it for other useful purposes, which generates some money, or just stick it underground. Uh, right now, the technology is expensive, um, but there are huge potentials for reducing those costs. And you know, for all the criticism that the Kemper project that you mentioned and other projects have received, what's really important is that we do some projects and learn about them and learn what works what doesn't work and reduce mm-hmm. costs and so on. So I'm, I'm actually very, very worried about the future of these technologies, not just in North America, but in a lot of other countries, because policymakers aren't willing to go the distance and fund these early projects that are more expensive and more visible politically, even though those are going to help bring down the costs over the long haul. And, and if anything, the Trump administration's budget, um, which won't be the final budget, but it's a proposal, mm-hmm. if anything, that budget is probably going to make it even harder because the budget hits advanced technology pretty hard, including energy technology. And I think a lot of people in the industry won't see it as a reliable source of support. So I, I, I think this is a, if somebody really wants to help um, ensure that there's some role for fossil fuels in a world that also decarbonizes, you'd want to make a big investment in carbon capture and storage. And so far, we're not seeing any evidence of that out of the Trump administration. So you think it's simply, you're not rejecting the concept of CCS, but you're saying, unless they put way more money into it, it's just not going to go anywhere. Yeah, it's money or other forms of policy support. So what's happening is that firms are looking at new technologies mm-hmm. that might work at scale, but we don't know. And so they need to make an investment in those technologies. And if a firm is reasonably confident in their ability to recover that investment over multiple projects, which is what the bet that Southern made when they did Kemper, right? Um, and you know, I'm sure they're going to make mistakes along the way here and there, but if they're reasonably confident in that, then they're going to go make investments. And, and the signal that's being sent to almost any firm that's thinking about investments in this area, when you look at Kemper, when you look at their erratic policy support in this country and Britain, other countries, the signal that's being sent to these firms is be really careful because if your project goes awry, which is you know, intrinsic to new technologies, then you could get stuck with the bill. And I think that that is removing carbon capture and storage as an option mm-hmm. in a way at, at exactly the time when what we want to be doing is the opposite, which is having as many options on the table as possible. Okay. Uh, let's just work out a little bit more on the, on the cost uh, equation and more generally uh, with respect to renewables and, and fossil fuel, I guess. Bloomberg just put out their annual new energy outlook, and it's actually reasonably dramatic. Uh, according to the report, uh, the cost for photovoltaic, which solar, um, actually is only a quarter of what it was in 2009, and according to this report, likely to fall another 66% by their outdate, which is t- 2040. Offshore wind has dropped 30% in price in the past eight years, and they predict another 47% drop, again, out to the uh, their out year, which is 2040. Um, and they argue that even if China and India do continue to build some coal-fired facilities, 
that solar will start to be providing cheaper electricity as soon as the 2020s, and that's important in both China and India. So I guess uh, really the question is, are we now looking at the prospect of more rapid decarbonization, uh, David, based on these pricings uh, that Bloomberg is identifying? Um, it's hard to tell. Uh, first of all, I'm pretty skeptical about okay. the price. I'm pretty skeptical about the price claims. There's no question that the technologies are improving radically, and and the other technology that's improving or cluster of technologies improving radically is storage, battery storage, less so conventional storage technologies. But there's more attention now to to storage and the need for storage because of the variable or intermittent characteristics of renewable power, wind, wind and solar, and so all of that is good news for those industries. I am more than a little bit worried that these reports, um, the Bloomberg study is one of a class of them, have a tendency to focus on the bulk raw power production costs and not enough on the balance, what's called balance of system, so that all the other stuff needed to generate the electricity as well as now to integrate that into a reliable electric power system. Mm -hmm. And in energy systems where a relatively small fraction of electricity is coming from renewables. That's not a huge deal uh, unless you have some way to 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 you know to store. So the Germans, for example, have a big solar program, but they're interconnected with other grids, including this the the Swiss grid. And so there's this kind of huge variation in power flows that's happening on the grid as the sun comes up and goes down, and wind blows, wind stops blowing, and those are expensive. And as we see renewables take over a larger share, that cost goes up. We've seen this spring in California record levels of what's called curtailment, where renewable sources, mainly solar, are asked to shut off for a while because you can't the, the grid can't integrate all that extra power. And so we don't really have that problem fixed yet. And we can imagine solutions like interconnecting grids so that they're larger, um, doing more storage, um, having more time of use pricing so that users of power respond to variations, potentially huge variations in price. But those are still solutions that we're imagining and not yet really implementing in, in full. And in fact, what we're just allowing to happen is renewables are, are are causing big gyrations in prices in wholesale power markets that are then affecting and sometimes completely undermining other sources. So we see in the U.S. a number of nuclear plants are now basically not able to make uh, ends meet because they see lower power prices in, in markets that have a lot of renewables or a lot of natural gas. And so I, I think this is still very much a work in progress all around the world. And there's a tendency in these reports to focus only on the, the bulk power prices and not on, on how do you actually integrate that quantity of electricity into a grid. So it's a spot versus... Uh, versus these wholesale pricing structures that we're talking about. It's to some degree spot versus wholesale pricing structures. A lot of it is what is known in power markets as ancillary services, where we're starting to trade now the service of rapidly responding to variations in power output, variations in voltage and things like that. Most of the ancillary services markets are not yet mature to a, to a degree where you can make a lot of money in them. And so I think you're seeing a lot of projects that could be really important for the grid, for reliability of the grid, that don't yet go forward because they don't see enough of a market incentive to, mm -hmm. to bring them on. And that, that, and the same goes goes for a lot of storage projects. When we're looking at markets such as California that are bringing a lot of storage, it's usually because of mandates and not because of just pure market signals. Okay, okay. Uh, let me turn to, uh, and this may be more on the negative side, but uh, to the Mission 2020 report that came out, as you're aware, uh, Christina Figueres, uh, is one of the leaders of this Mission 2020 group, and uh, she was very involved in the UNFCCC project. And um, essentially the report, which, uh, as I said, just came out recently, 
said that unless we begin to bend the uh, CO2 increase curve downwards within three years, I mean, they point to 2020, they're saying that unless we, I know it's been relatively flat, but they're saying downwards, in effect, the report said it will not be possible to reach the two degree, let alone the 1.5 degree centigrade increase uh, in average uh, temperature. Uh, so, I mean, uh, what do you think of that report and what do you think might be able to be done to deal with what the report says are the consequences? Yeah, so I, I welcome the efforts that Christina and others are making to draw more attention to the climate issue. They're really important. Um, I think the math is there, and the math has been there for a long time, mm -hmm. which is that we are going to blow through two degrees. Um, a few years ago, Charlie Kennell and I wrote a, a little essay in Nature saying that the uh, that the countries that are pushing towards what was then called the Paris process toward, towards an agreement in Paris need to also deal with the reality that two degrees is no longer feasible. Right. And we, we got an awful lot of hate mail for that article. <laughs> no, no, nobody wants to believe it, but it's true. And it has been true for a long time because there's just tremendous amount of inertia built into the energy system. And so even if there were you know, a huge amount of political will and willingness to spend a lot of money on things, the inertia with which the capital stock turns over in the energy system, that the inertia is, is, is huge and, and the system responds slowly. And so I think um, that message is seen as a kind of pessimistic message. message. I, I, as a, someone trained originally in political science, see that as you know, reality. Mm -hmm. and we have to deal with that reality. Had we worked harder on the problem 20 years ago, we might be in a different reality where the curves were bending down faster and where it might be possible to stop warming at two degrees. But I think part of grappling with that reality is is thinking about what other targets, including ways of expressing those targets, might be more realistic. And also, frankly, helping people recognize that we're going to have to deal with a lot more climate change than they had originally expected and not to believe governments when they say they're getting together to stop warming at two degrees because that's just that that's gone, I think. So are you really saying then, David, I mean, we have to put much more strongly into the mix adaptation as opposed to just purely mitigation? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, this, as a political scientist, one of the things that's interesting is that the politics of adaptation and mitigation are very different. Uh -huh. Mitigation only works when you have uh, all the major emitters and then eventually essentially all emitters cooperating over long periods of time, adopting policies that are going to be expensive. They're going to affect economic competitiveness. That's why there needs to be an international coordination, because not only is this a global problem, but but countries and firms are wary of competing in a marketplace where their competitors face a different different set of energy costs. And so you need to do something that's very hard to do, which is build an effective international governance structure and do that over a long period of time. And that's core to the politics of the mitigation problem. That's why we've been talking a lot about mitigation for a long time and not getting very much done, whereas adaptation is the opposite in some sense. The, the benefits of doing something about adaptation accrue locally. The effects of eroding beaches are local and regional to some degree, uh, ports, the same thing. And the spending on the infrastructure also generates jobs and other things locally. And so the, the adaptation, I think maybe there's a maxim that comes out of the politics of climate change, studying the politics of climate change, which is that society as a whole is probably going to under-mitigate and therefore be forced to over-adapt because the politics of mitigation are so difficult and the politics of adaptation are in some sense unavoidable once you've committed a large amount of climate change. Well, then yeah, I won't hold you to it, David, but I, I did want to um, 
uh, ask you kind of this final question, which is, are, are you optimistic about uh, the Paris Accord and the consequences of the Paris Accord? If you're not, what do you think we, we need to do? How do we move from here to something uh, more optimistic, something better than what we currently have? Yeah, so I, I've um, I've been studying the climate change issue since the very beginning. I went to almost all the preparatory sessions leading up to what became the Framework Convention on Climate Change. I've been watching this for a long time, right? And for almost all that entire period, I've been very pessimistic. I've I've had the view that governments have been negotiating and using frameworks for negotiation that were bound to fail because they required too much of international governance. And so um, uh, Paris is really different, though. And so I'm actually very optimistic about Paris because okay. it's more bottom up. It's more flexible. Um, it's less brittle. And so even a big country like the United States can leave or be flaky for a while and the whole rest of the framework <laughs> doesn't fall apart the way the way Kyoto did to some degree. Right. And and so I, I'm actually pretty optimistic about this. Where I'm concerned is that there's a difference between optimism about dealing with a problem over the long term and then the time scale over which we're going to deal with it. Because the flexibility um, uh, and plasticity of the Paris framework is one that's going to take a while for, for governments and firms and NGOs to figure out. And meanwhile, the emissions kind of keep accumulating in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that that's still a mismatch. And one of the reasons why I'm really concerned that we've spent so long working on other frameworks that were bound to fail, that we only got around to Paris in some sense, to paraphrase Churchill from a different setting after we tried everything else. And, and that's where we are right now. So in, in that sense, I, I am, uh, I, I'm, I'm, optimistic about the framework over the long haul, but I think we need to deal with the reality that the framework won't stop climate change quickly. So, so you mean a, a real dose of realism, an, an acknowledgement that we've got bad times ahead, but that if we collectively work, that we can be uh, optimistic further down the road? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's, there's what's going to happen is that as countries start to control emissions and new industries emerge and so on, that interest groups will form around that and that um, those interest groups will then push policies further and more aggressively. And all of that is a source of optimism, but there's no avoiding the reality. Okay. Well, David, I really want to thank you for spending some time with us on these uh, very difficult questions. And I hope uh, that the podcast audience will enjoy some of your analysis uh, that we've just uh, we've just spoken about. Thank you, Alan. Alan, thank you very much for the invitation. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. This global symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.